And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and it is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. As most of you know, I've been writing a, a series of articles for Dread Central, and it focuses on a look at uh, my, my life in horror and how the genre has impacted me since a boy. And most of all now as a filmmaker, since this is the industry and pretty much where I work in the horror industry, always looking to get out and try different things. But I believe that for overall, the genre has defined me up to this point. And I've talked about this a number of times that it's never been easy uh, to not only get into this industry, but to remain in this industry, which is why uh, the, the title of the series is basically uh, Swimming Upstream, Going Against the Current. And I was inspired by this because as a boy, and I've talked many times about this, Jaws was the movie that made me want to make movies. So as a boy, by the time I was eight years old, I, I knew, thanks to my grandmother, I knew all of the names in horror from Vincent Price, Peter Laurie, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Boris Karloff, you name them, I knew them, is really how it was. And the genre impacted me. Now, it's more than just loving movies, and that's the point of this podcast today. The point of this podcast is get out there and support your horror magazines. Now, Fangoria has returned, and this is great. It's so important that Fangoria is back. But you have Dread Central, which has been kind enough to afford me space to give me uh, the time to share this journey, this story, because hopefully people reading it are getting something out of it. It's more than just, I remember the time I went to see the Amityville Horror. Who gives a shit? The point I'm talking about is the understanding of the concept of what it was like to get into an R movie, what constituted an R movie. How did uh, you know D uh, Dawn of the Dead not get an X rating and the impact of an X rating on its distribution? The same with Alien. All of those things I learned also while growing up. It was more than just busting my R-rated cherry on the Amityville Horror. That's not what it was. So whether you read Bloody Disgusting or Scream Magazine, Room Morgue, Morbidly Beautiful, 1428, um, I can go on and on and I apologize. I'm not trying to leave anybody out because there are many of them. My point is find the online horror magazine or in print horror magazine of your choice and get out there and support them. Because reading them is not just about reading for the latest spoiler or the interview with your favorite actor, although you can get things out of those interviews because these magazines are offering so much more, even more than when I was a kid because they could only print so much. Now they have unlimited digital space on the web and you can get so much else in the way of bonus features and extra interviews and, and unedited interviews. Here in the article, we're giving you just this segment, but if you want the full interview, click here. This is gold. It's beyond gold, it's platinum, it's element 115. Utilize this because these magazines are more than just entertainment. They are primers, they are educational tools, they are resources. Embrace them, use them, devour them. Now, when I was a little kid in second, third grade, I got put in uh, this special gifted class with uh, about nine other little wonderkins. And that was a great time all on its own. But there was a boy in that class who absolutely loved monsters as much as I did. But the best part about him was he could fucking draw them. 
Like he could draw them like you wouldn't believe. And I know you're thinking, well, to a second grader, anybody can do something that's that's great. No, this kid, I swear, was like ready for Marvel by the time he would eventually turn 11. He was so good. And I was so in awe of his drawing that one time he did a bulletin board and he had Godzilla on the bulletin board and he did a cutout of Godzilla. Well, when the bulletin board came down, because our teacher allowed us to do bulletin boards in class, he gave me the Godzilla. And I was I like, I coveted it. And I went home and I immediately lied to my mother. And I said that I drew that Godzilla. And she, I don't think she believed me. My mom was pretty smart. I don't think she believed me at all. Of course, she had never seen anything before or after that compared to that Godzilla. But she hung it on the fridge all the same. And she allowed me to take credit for it. She never really praised, I can always remember that. She didn't praise me like, oh, you have to draw more. I think she knew. And she also knew that I had this big uh, bromance for this kid because I was so in awe of his talents. But I learned from him because he got this, uh, it was it looked like a small newspaper. It was printed in that fashion, like a small, like a school newspaper uh, on real newsprint. And it was called the Monster Times. And inside was just, it was just articles on the making of these movies. And sometimes they recap the plot lines and sometimes they did interviews. But overall, it was about how they made these movies and the magic that went behind them. And that's when I first discovered, you know, how Godzilla was truly made. They, they did this, I remember, it was a big feature on the 1954 film. Because keep in mind, we're talking, this is around 1973, 74. And the original run of Godzilla was coming to an end with Terror of Mecha Godzilla. And he wouldn't come back for another 10 years. So there weren't a lot of Godzilla films up to that point and really not a lot of good ones. But the original black and white classic, you know, with his famous iconic picture of the trains in his mouth, that was important. And I remember I went home and I, I, I had to have it because he had it. And, but I really did like it. He would share it with me in school. And I told my mom, I need to have this. And my, we didn't have a lot of money. And I don't know if you needed a lot of money. Uh, I don't know if it was really anything that would break the bank. But my mother got me the subscription to the Monster Times and I devoured it. I can still remember. I took it everywhere whenever the new issue came. And I think you got like, I don't know, maybe six issues out of the year, if that. But I took it everywhere with me and I read it and I read it and I read it. It was like these newspapers were my security blanket. And I would just read the same articles over and over. And I learned that Godzilla was a man in a suit and how his spikes lit up and that sometimes they use puppets. And I learned all of this by third grade. So I was devouring all this. And then you could get the book club and I got books on movie monsters and how they made the effects stop motion with Willis O'Brien and King Kong. It was more and more and more. And one thing that they definitely taught me about were makeup effects in the way of Jack Pierce, uh, Millicent Vincent, uh, all these people that designed the classic universal monsters, how the Invisible Man, they made invisible, which were groundbreaking effects at the time. You could say even the precursor to CGI. I mean, I, I just read, 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 read. And they were resources to me. And, and they helped me start forming this like neural net to put all of this data together. It wasn't just like learning data. It wasn't just content. That's what I'm talking about in my last episode where Scorsese talked about the difference between film artistry and content. I wasn't just reading junk like, oh, here's the plot line of, of Godzilla for the 50th time and could Godzilla win against Rodan in a fight? It wasn't that kind of fast food 
writing and journalism. This was more about, here's the magic of how they did it. Here's why you should be in awe. And they they talked to the stuntmen and the, and the guy uh, that was in the suit and, and it was great because you learned that, you know, this, this guy lost weight and they had to drill holes in the fingers of the outfit. This is what I'm talking about. It was living. It was sucking the passion out of these films, seeing the artistry that went into them instead of just, oh yeah, they did some CGI and they had some stunt work and this guy's rigged and they jump and they put the computer effects in and it's done. That's content. Sometimes it's artistry, but again, you can make films that are cuisine, you know, big luscious meals, no matter whether you're vegan, vegetarian, omnivore, herbivore, it doesn't matter, carnivore. When you go to a high-end restaurant, you get cuisine. If you want your Big Mac or your Chick-fil-A, you go there and they make it the same. A Big Mac in Paris is the same as a Big Mac in Chicago. And if it isn't, it fucking better be because that's what we want. And that's how we can sometimes look at our films, which is why Scorsese will say that the superhero movies are more akin to an adventure ride, a theme park ride, than they really are high-end cinema. They're fast food, and that's fine because we all love to shove fast food into our holes. We know that, but you can't live off of it. And if your diet is predicated upon it, well, then you got problems. Well, the same applies for cinema. And before I go into the magazines again, the same applies for life. If you're just going through life and you're existing, well, you're kind of just amassing content. That's all you're doing. You're living out content. Are you living passionately? Are you, are you having adventures? I mean, it's more than just sex. It's more than just drugs. It's more than just accumulating material things and wealth in the bank. Let's face it, you can have all the wealth in the bank and you're still going to die. And it's not like you're going to have some U-Haul attached to your freaking ass to take all your assets with you. So it, that's not living. And if you're not living, and that was the point that I brought in my last episode, if you're, if you're not living, okay, then what's the point? If you're just existing, then you are living content. But for me, the original uh, genesis of the article situation for um, the pieces in Dread Central, it was about me swimming upstream and fighting against the crowd and not just going downstream with everyone else. And I wrote in the first article, I I used to work in education and there was an educator that didn't like me, kind of thought I was some liberal hippie, which I am not. And uh, one time after a faculty meeting, he approached me and he said, you know, Smith, you're like a salmon. All you do is fight against the grain. You swim upstream and you get beaten up against the rocks and the current only to get to your destination. And that's where you'll die. He said, why can't you just float downstream like the rest of us? It's a lot easier. You should try it sometime. And my reply back was, well, you know what else floats downstream? Shit. So look, there's nothing wrong with living your life whatever way you want. I'm not judging that. But I know a lot of people who have all the comforts. They have the big house. They have the lease cars. They have the nice clothes. Uh, they have a country club, you know, uh, a subscription, a membership where you know, they, they go to the pool and they, they go on vacations and they're bored. I know of some people, they, they simply have affairs because they're bored. There's no passion in the marriage anymore. It's, their marriage has become content. Their lives have become content. And that, I think, is what Scorsese was really trying to say. Not that he's dunking or ragging 
on superhero movies. You like your superhero movies? Good for you, man. Look, I love a fucking Whopper. Let me tell you, man, I don't like fast food a lot, but man, you put a Whopper in front of my face. I love the taste of that thing. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I, I, I could eat a Whopper five days a week. And I just know that that's also no good for me. From the monster times, I went to uh, famous monsters of Filmland. I remember that I could get older issues of that. And, uh, and I got them all at this. It was great. It was this little newspaper stand bookstore called Bray's Newspaper Stand, Bray's Newsstand. And I could go in there and get my monster fill in there, get my monster magazines and, and continue reading and learning. But it was Fangoria that was the game changer. And in 1979, when I was in a Walden Books and I saw that thing sitting on the shelf, and I believe it was Godzilla on their first cover, and they had a sister publication called Starlog. And that was fine, but I wasn't into the science fiction stuff then. I didn't really care too much about Star Trek, and although I enjoyed Star Wars, that was different. I didn't want to read about Forbidden Planet and all of that stuff, and that's a bias. I should want to learn everything I can because eventually I found that Starlog contained just as much valuable information on that genre as it did for the horror genre. But man, it was when they published their issue on Prophecy, 1979's Mutant Bear Monster Movie, that I, I just needed to subscribe to this. It was the first magazine that I subscribed to myself. I gave my mom the money and I subscribed to Fangoria Magazine. And here's why. It was more than just seeing the pictures. And they always ran great pictures. It was about learning. It was where the neural net was coming together. I was reading interviews with actors. I was reading interviews with the directors, the producers, and the writers. It was thanks to Fangoria that I would learn about Larry Cohen. I would learn all about American International Pictures and Sam Arkoff. It just went on and on and on. I, I was devouring this information. I was learning about George Romero, John Carpenter, and how they ran things on a set. And you got inspiration from them. I remember John Carpenter in an interview for Halloween, uh, when Halloween 2, I think, came out. But they were interviewing John for something. And he was talking about how, you know, they, they went up north and he filled, I think he had an LTD, but he filled his trunk full of leaves because they were shooting in Pasadena, which had to pass for Indiana. And they came back and with a leaf blower, they blew all these leaves all over the road to make it look like it was fall. And here she is in Pasadena. And if you look at the scene, you can tell that there are trees in that scene that do not grow in Indiana. And how they, they made it look like this all on the cheap. And they, they stuffed a Panavision camera in the car, pulled it out. They would shoot Jamie Lee, sometimes at places where they had no permission and people would come out and chase him away. And he said that, you know, Jamie Lee would jump into the car and they'd pull away because his attitude was, as you get a camera, you go out and you make the best film with the best resources you have. End of story. And that was inspiring to a 13-year-old boy who wanted to make movies with his silent film camera. You can do this too. That was his attitude. And when years later, when I met Dean Cundy and Tommy Lee Wallace, and I asked them about that story, they said, yeah, that, that's pretty much what we did. Okay, you, you just went out and you made the movie by hook or crook. Fangoria was telling you about how things worked on a movie set. And when Carpenter said, in, in the future, when you go to make movies, you find great people, both in front and behind the camera, and you hang on to them for life. Learning how Romero made Creepshow and how he made the original Night of the Living Dead and all of his other films. I mean, it, and then, you know, David Cronenberg and, 
it, it just went on and on and on. And I was devouring all these names, Clive Barker, and like I said, Larry Cohen in the making of Q and, and Sammy Arkoff, and it just goes on. And I learned so much from this magazine to the point where one time I got on the phone and I called Frank Henenlotter of Frankenhooker Basket Case Brain Damage fame. And there he was. I called directory assistance. He was listed. They gave me his number and I called him. And I wasn't calling to be a fan like, oh, I'm a fan of yours. I'm a fan of Basket Case. I was calling because I was a student. I asked him questions about production and that's what stopped him from hanging up on me because the first question out of his mouth was, how did you get my number? And I said, well, you're in the book. I mean, I called directory assistance. I live in the Poconos and I'm not doing anything bad here. I'm not trying to harass you. Uh, I'm calling you because I really want to know how you did certain things, how you did the stop motion in basket case. And he gave me his time. Here's the best part. Years later, I would work on a project with Frank. And I brought that up. I said, do you remember years and years ago, probably in like 82, 83, who knows, around there, you got a phone call from a kid and he goes, was it late at night? And I said, yeah, it was like maybe 8.30, 9 o'clock. He goes, was that you? I said, that was me. And I said, I never called him again. I told him, I said, Frank, I never called you again. I didn't bother you. was like, hey, I'm now I have your number. I'm going to call you again and again and again. That's stalking and being an idiot. What it was was I wanted to learn. And I knew I'd probably just get one shot at this guy. And I called him and he stayed on the phone with me for like two, three hours. It was terrific. I paid like hell for that long distance bill, but that's another story. It wasn't just that Fangoria was reporting on horror. They were giving us not just content. They were giving us life. And that's how you have to ask yourself, what are you doing in your life? Are you seizing the moment? Are you seizing the day? Are you truly appreciating everything that is in your life or are you just clocking time and just logging content? That's important to know. And also this magazine, it helped me learn to read between the lines and recognize warning signs with movies. This was important. And let me, let me shift off the topic. As you know, uh, I, I did an episode on uh, scams as a kid, consumer scams. One of them was uh, sea monkeys. I think sea monkeys was one of the first times as a kid I understood reality versus expectation. Uh, I really thought you were going to get these little people in, at the bottom of your tank. And you can listen to that episode. It's called The Sea Monkey Scam, and it's, it's on my cinema playlist. But in addition to that, uh, I remember Squirmles. Squirmles was this piece of fabric with googly eyes, and on the commercial, it looks like it can do all these crazy, wacky things. I'll provide a link in the show notes to it, to the commercial. And then when you get it in real life, it's just like this fuzzy piece of felt is really what it is with the googly eyes tied to fishing line, and it doesn't do jack shit. And then you realize, ah, I got screwed on that. But that's when you're a little kid. But when you start hitting 15, 16, which I was, and Atari is promising Pac-Man on its 2600 system, you're expecting the best. And my brother came to me and begged me, and I did an episode on this. It's called Fuck Man. The, uh, the Atari con job, I think it was. Uh, yeah, I think that's what it was called, the Atari con job. And it's on my uh, cinema podcast playlist. And uh, I put $30. It was a $60 car cartridge. You had to put a deposit down. We walked all the way up to the mall, which was five miles one way, not in snow uphill, but it was five miles one way. 
put the deposit down, and then in March of 1983, you got your cartridge. And here was the problem. I was suspicious because all during this time, you saw no commercial, even though they're, they're giving commercials about that Pac-Man is coming, they never showed you what it looked like. And there were no screenshots of it in magazines, and most of all, on the box. When we picked up the original box, and there's some of you are gonna say, no, 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 it came free with the Atari 2600. No, that was later. The original, release of it was a cartridge and it was 60 bucks. At least that's what we paid where we were. I remember looking at the box when we got it and handing the box to my brother and we walked like we had, you know, the Lost Ark of the Covenant in our hands uh, back home for kids were waiting for this. There were no screenshots. And it's like, I wonder why that is. Then we put it in the machine. You realized you'd been hosed. And there were plenty of warning signs on the way. What does this have to do with Fangoria? Well, when you start reading the interviews and as you start becoming more adept in the information and how they're reporting it, sometimes you can start reading where directors or even actors or producers, it's the way they say things. They're not 100% uh, ebullient about their product, but they'll, they make it sound like, yeah, this came out good, this, or it came out good enough. And you're like, hey, what's the problem there? They're not really raving about this. But for me, the big one was when they did their piece, Fangoria did their piece on Jaws 3D. And in March of 1983, it was that same time, uh, Jaws 3D played as a trailer on the front of Young Doctors in Love, one of those airplane spoof comedy things about soap operas this time around. And I remembered seeing the pre, I'm like, oh my God, Jaws 3. And then I saw it was Jaws 3D when the 3D letters come in and I thought, uh-oh, there was the first uh-oh moment. Like, this could be bad. And then the poster came out. And what did they have at the top of the poster? Just like Halloween 2 and just like Halloween 3. All new. All new. Like it's some kind of product instead of a movie. All new? I guess. Like maybe did, would people think that they just took Jaws and made it in 3D? But the artwork clearly showed it was in SeaWorld and all of that. But I digress. However... When you read Fangoria, and in the article, it started with Joe Alves saying something like, in the first 30 seconds, you're going to have a big laugh and a scream. And I thought, why would we be laughing at the start of a Jaws movie? I mean, we certainly were not laughing in the first film. And the killing of the divers in the second one was pretty good, too. Why would we be laughing? And then it's when he said, we seriously considered continuing the storyline that it was the same shark from Jaws 2 that would be in Jaws 3. Now, if you remember the ending of Jaws 2 and that fish bit into that power line to the lighthouse and over 200,000 volts went through it, literally cooking its eyes inside of its sockets and fire inside of its mouth, how would that shark have ever survived? And that was the uh-oh moment, real big uh-oh moment for me because it was like, why would you even consider that? Like, that's just really stupid. Why was that even a topic of conversation? Like that would have never even occurred to me. This is a different shark. And why would the same shark be following them? Well, we figure that out in Jaws the Revenge. So those were my uh-oh moments. And Fangoria taught me. Look, they had to keep pushing out their stories, right? They need their readership. So they're not going to trash the movie and they're not going to write an opinion piece saying that we think this movie could be trouble. They want to have access to the studios and filmmakers. It's all part what I learned of playing the game. They played the game too. But sometimes they left you 
clues to say, we're playing the game, can you see us winking? And that article, I remember, stood out to me as a big wink. And I thought, go in with low expectations. And I did, and I wasn't disappointed. When I was in school before Fangoria, I remember I learned from reading all of this stuff through the Monster Times and such about Dick Smith and that he had published a book on makeup effects. And I remember like by the time I was in fourth grade, I was doing the Frankenstein monster flat top and doing bolts and I could do werewolf makeup and alien makeup. And I was doing it all on my own with household you know, supplies around the house. I'm using a milk jug, a plastic milk jug and carton to make my Frankenstein head. And I was learning, these were resources. And then you could get these books, even after Fangoria, you could get these books at Walden Books. And I bought up books on Hollywood special effects. And that's where I learned the names of Tom Savini and Dick Smith and all these people, Rob Bottin. It was amazing. And I felt like now when I went to go into horror movies, I was going in armed. I was going in understanding the art that was going on behind it all. And that is why, as I start to wind this down, I want you to listen very carefully. Get out there. Support your horror periodicals. Support Fangoria. Support Dread Central. Spread the word on Bloody Disgusting and Scream Magazine and Rue Morgue and Morbidly Beautiful and all of them. Whatever ones you love, post about them. Because here's the thing. Everybody loves to bitch and complain. And the bitchers and whiners and complainers, they're the first to take to the comment section and write something negative. But the people who truly love and appreciate, they don't do that. They just feel, look, I really enjoyed this. And I might say something to somebody. I'll do a verbal word of mouth recommendation. But they don't go out and really promote because they were satisfied. The malcontents are the ones that are the loudest, and they're usually the minority, but they're the ones that love to just post negative shit, and the internet has embraced those kind of people. Be the passionate one. Be the one that is doing more than just reading, consuming, and logging content in your life. Get out there and support people that are putting this information out there more than just giving you spoilers or little factoids or useless trivia about horror films. Get out there and read them consume them, and learn from them. This is Harrison Smith. Hope you'll continue to read through my Dread Central piece as it will top out at part eight coming up the week after. Part seven drops this coming week. Thank you for listening. And I'll be back next week with a look at the making of my film, The Special, and how that filmmaking process was not cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, and is not content. Thank you for your time.